I'm never sure. I'm deeper in Plato's, Plato's cave than I should be, but let's, let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, what a great grace and a source of certainly joy for Suzanne and me, and I'm especially for me. I'm so glad to be doing this, um, that we're all doing it together. We're not meant to be alone, that we could do this together with such good people, all of you have eager, probing minds and good hearts. You carry burdens often in your families um, or in your work. Um, that we could find support for what we do to make our faith real in the world. To, um, my own belief is that at the center of it is a cross. We spoke with a friend this morning who was talking about the corruptions in the church. He was reading a, somebody who's written a book about um, the, what's it called, Doc? The, the knight, or not the knights of Columbus, but the, the, anyway, the corruptions in the church, you know, the, um, that they go high up. And he was expressing his shock, and I was surprised that he was shocked. <laughs> I can't imagine a time when our church wasn't facing corruption. I'm saying that really seriously. I'm saying it to you guys because I'm trusting in all of our work together that you would be more level-headed. Even you, Mary. <laughs> that all of us would be more level-headed, that we'd take nothing away from our hearts. You know, and I think back to Dante's time in the corruptions that Dante exposes in his Divine Comedy. Or take, take for instance, when the papacy moved to, to France and we had two popes. People are alarmed at what's going on right now. My God, the church has never, never, never not been... If the church is the center of Christ, when is it not going to be under attack? When will it ever not be under attack by evil? To expect otherwise is to somehow miss what we're doing. Um, the church has always, always been dealing with attacks from within and without. So that we could gather together to do this together, to have done Fidia Ratio and, and uh, Regensburg, where popes are calling us to reason, not just our emotions, because they all know that without a sound reason, our faith gets crippled. So Christ, for this work that we're doing here in this group, I am deeply, deeply grateful. Um, and I ask for a grace for all of us um, to take strength from the gifts that these people are to us. Leo, Leo, Pope John, Benedict, now Lewis, and eventually Chesterton, that these men had the courage to stand alone in a world that was going nuts um, when the church was at a cross. I mean, where else can we be? That's that's the center of our faith. Um, that you all show up weekly amazes me. I am grateful. Um, strengthen us um, with your spirit. Give us courage. Help us to be bold. Help us all, all of us, all of us, all of us, all of us, to be bold and humble. To not be afraid to bring you to whatever we do in our families, in our work, 
so that people can know your church here now in what we do. I offer special thanksgiving for the last week and what happened with the um, Supreme Court's decision. The people at St. Francis Daly have been praying for this to an end to abortion. We're not there yet, but a, ma a major step has been taken. Um, I love our country. I've had little reason to praise it for years now. What we did took us back to our founding documents in an amazing way. It was a great affirmation of the good sense of our document. It's at a time when so many people are trying to destroy them, our country. Um, so thank you, Lord, for your grace, the gathering forces that are um, answering, trying to answer these, <laughs> these stupid people. Um, for all the great good, um, thank you. What a heartening week for all of us. Um, help us all to take strength. My own belief is the violence has just started. The war has been underground. Now it's surfacing. Um, it's only just beginning. So let us be strengthened in the work that we do, um, in the work ahead. We will not be able to complete this work to carry it forward if we do not know our Constitution and our laws. We will not. The whole call from Leo to John Paul to Benedict is to recover reason. Laws are a product of reason. We will not be able to address these things if we don't recover better minds. So help us not to take our laws for granted as learn, our constitution, our laws, the legal precedences so that we're able to answer these things in our families, in our children, in our communities. Our whole call here is to strengthen our reason so that we can find a strength in our faith. We are glad to do this. I certainly am. Um, watch over the justices, protect them, protect our churches. The Catholic Church will be a target now, um, for sure. The justices who supported this will be targets. People will be targeted at a local level. The contest now will be taken to states. The, the debates have to take place at a local level. It puts a burden back on us where it should have been all along. That means we have to carry on this fight at a local level. So let us take this seriously. All of us here take this very seriously. We have a fight now in our yards. It was national. It was easy to dissociate it. You know, it's remote. Now it's here. It's in our homes, our backyards, our neighborhoods. Strengthen us to carry it on, knowing that the cost of it um, is a cross and may be martyrdom. So please um, grant us your grace. This is a big turning point in our history. Um, help us to pick up the gift that's been given to us and, and um, receive it and help it to grow. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. If you think this is bad, sometimes when we say dinners at, or prayers at home, my wife will look across the table and say, dinner's getting cold, the dinner's getting cold.
I think that's probably the longest prayer I've ever given. So. <laughs> God. Okay. A um, couple of things. It's good to see you all again. Genuinely good to see you all. Particularly the you two. Um, um, a couple of just practical things. Um, we've talked about a dinner night and um, my own preference would be after we finish C.S. Lewis to have a dinner because if we wait till we're done with orthodoxy, orthodoxy is going to, you know I'm giving a, a night per chapter for Lewis so that's, I mean some people could go through Lewis in a night it, it can be done, it's, I, I don't want to do that um, but Chesterton's going to take a while, it's a, it's a longer book and um, In some ways, it may be more difficult. I mean, I don't know how you guys are going to find it. I, I, Chester, to me, as a journalist, he's writing to ordinary people, but I think he's got one of the most gifted minds in the 20th century. Lewis converted um, because of Chesterton's writing. That's how important he is. Um, I, I don't know an argument myself that Lewis has made that he doesn't get from Chesterton. They're all there. Um, he, he's so simple, he's so ordinary, he talks about fairy tales and walks in the park and you know so he's so grounded in ordinary reality but his, the level of his thinking is profound so I don't know how you're going to find him but I don't want to go through him quickly so that means either postponing our dinner for six weeks or however long it'll be or having a dinner after Lewis and I've missed having a meal with you guys so Tentatively, what I'd like to do is next week we'll finish Lewis and um, let's see if we can schedule a dinner where we can meet, have a movie or just a dinner, which whatever anybody wants, and then we'll pick up Chesterton. But just keep in mind a, um, a dinner night. I've got two movies here that we have extra copies of. One's Man on Fire, it's a, there's a good bit of violence in it, and the other one is Quigley with Tom Selleck and I love them both we just we don't have a blu-ray I don't know how we got them and we've got Quigley if anybody would like either of those movies you're welcome to have them they're they're both of them are really good and um, along the line of movies Suzanne and I watched um, Father Stu some of you are so a lot of you are so good so a lot of you have seen it I, I would recommend it Suzanne got up in the first 15 minutes and walked out. She was so disgusted with him. I, I, I said to her, come back, come back. For goodness sake, come back. Stop being so proper, come back. He is vulgar, he is seedy, he is arrogant. It's sort of hard to watch him, except I was assuming that it would all get better or we wouldn't be there. Because I know that um, Wahlberg is Catholic and so is uh, Mel Gibson. So I was, I was assuming they were doing something. Anyway, I was sort of enjoying him because he's... To me, he's so real. He just, I, there are problems. For God's sake, we're, we, we, we are not Protestants. We do not, our, our benchmark, the frame of reference for us is not propriety or respectability. Respectability is a handmaid. It's a handmaid. It's meant to serve something. For lots of people, respectability is an end in itself. They judge people by respectability. That's it. It's like the Jewish law. 
You're not respectable, there's something wrong with you. Parents are raising their kids that way. We can't trash respectability, it's too important. But it's not the end. And this guy is anything but respectable. <laughs> I, I don't, for three quarters of the movie, I don't think anything but foulness comes out of his mouth. So some of you may be offended, I don't know. I, I don't know what the reviews are. But it's a wonderful movie, it's an affirmation of our church. I've been grieving, Suzanne has heard me grieving for years. One of the, I'm, this is, I mean, it's a book. I'm writing a book on it, it's that serious to me. The, and the great question is, where are the Catholic artists today? I'm saying that very seriously. It's a grief. Where are the Catholic artists today? Because most of the stuff coming out of Hollywood is Protestant faith-based movies. And if you watch them, to me, they're like a half poison. I mean, they just make life respectable and easy. Everything resolves around. They don't deal with evil very well, and I don't think they deal with grace. Father Stu does. Both of them. The reference point for Father Stu is not respectability. If you watch the movie, everything that everybody wants is denied them. So the answer isn't success. It's not the, what is Father Flynn's word? The gospel of prosperity? That's, I think it's his description of the American Protestant world, the gospel of prosperity. It's not that prosperous, secure, prosperity, security. That's not what this film's doing. It looks at a guy who is so offensive, <laughs> a woman, sorry, I liked her, I mean, she, she, at least she calls him to, you know, she's calling him to some principles and she's, she's the beginning of a turn. I don't, I don't want to give movies away, I just, but, but if you can just get through the first half of the movie, it, it turns into a very tender, and it's not doing what faith-based movies do. It's not, and in that sense, it's deeply Catholic. It's deeply Catholic, and it's probably more Catholic because it, it looks at a world that's measured in being nice and decent and respectable. This guy is, is anything but that. Um, it's a wonderful movie, so I just encourage you, if you're looking for a movie, just watch it. Um, Father Stu, Mark Wahlberg, and Mel Gibson are in it. Um, the mother, the parents are awful. They're just awful. They're just awful. Um, which is good. Not all parents are, I mean, as much as we'd like to think we're so good, I think most of us as parents have real failures. Let's, you know, we'd like to be everything we wish we could be with our children, but we're passing on sins and, you know, so. Anyway, just a recommendation. It's a good movie. Um, if you can get through the first <laughs> half hour. Um, okay, the abortion issue. Let me get to this. I know this is going to be touchy, but I want to say a few words about it. If you look at the notes I gave you um, and you go to the back, it's on uh, page six of our notes. If you've got our notes. Did all of you get notes? They were, um, Ellie provided notes. If you didn't get them, there's some back there. If you don't have them offline. I want to do this very, very quickly because this is not, it, it relates directly, <laughs> kind of, 
in a tangential way. <laughs> put that together. Um, God, what you guys have to put up with. Um, I, I want to try to be as brief as this as I can. If you go back at the history, I, I love our Constitution. On the 4th of July in our home, um, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago we started a tradition. On the 4th of July we do readings. We read from the Declaration, we read from the Constitution, we read from the Federalist Papers. Um, we do Lincoln's Gettysburg, the first and second inaugural. We do Reagan's. Um, I look at some amendments. Um, my kids may hate me forever, but there's no way, no way on this earth I'm going to make of the 4th of July just fireworks and hot dogs. That's been a standing. So during the middle of the day, we spend an hour or two reading. It gets tearful sometimes. I've cried. When I've asked our grandchildren to stand up and read, you know, who can barely read from the Declaration, I get weepy to see a grandchild reading. God. We have the most amazing Constitution documents, founding documents that have ever historically been written. If you look at political regimes from the beginning, America set out to do something never done before. The balance of power, the, um, the fact that they knew that all democracies were destroyed by majority rule, the, pa the passions of people, they let their emotions take over and democracies go. Republics go. Rome went is the greatest republic that's ever existed until America. Or Dante's republics, we've gone through that, those of you who are here with Dante. America did something great, extraordinary, extraordinary. And right now, there are lots of people who believe that America is um, sick, evil, that our evils are systemic, that there are the, we are, we have these hidden evils you know, embedded in our Constitution. I'm sorry to see that. Um, what happened this last week was an affirmation of our Constitution. Um, and I, I just want to take a minute with that just to call, so those of you who are, may not be familiar with this, if you look on, the, on page five, sorry, page five, I've written down some major court decisions that were, that had a powerful influence on the history of American political life. Is everybody following me? Marbury versus Madison, the Missouri Compromise, Dred Scott, I'm bringing it up quickly to, to today, Roe Wade. Those, are, those were major landmark decisions um, that were reversed, that were reversed. Marbury and Madison um, wanted to, to give the um, Supreme Court um, review powers over legislation. That's in direct violation of the Constitution because the Constitution is trying to do everything it can to keep those powers separate so they can check each other. To give the Supreme Court that power, a review power over legislation exceeded their power. That was in place for a long time. It was overturned. Missouri Compromise, the same thing. Um, you know that as, as we moved west in our expansion that um, the whole question of slavery became a major issue that led to a civil war. We killed each other over that. Because the northern states wanted to, um, to make laws that said no slavery allowed in the, in the territories and the southern states wanted to um, allow slavery as we move forward. 
So there's a conflict. Every one of Lincoln and Douglas debates, probably the most important debates that's ever taken place in our history, were about that. Um, it, it's extraordinary. Um, the Dred Scott decision, it was a decision by uh, a Negro, Dred Scott, who was, um, who was raised in a slave state and his owners took him into free territories. And once he entered into free states, I think it was Illinois and um, um, Wisconsin, he, he, been, he was raised in Missouri, which was a slave state. He took the position, once free, always free. He entered a free state. So he should have been freed by the so states' rights law entitled him to freedoms. He took <laughs> he took I think of the attorney general to, to court, and then he took the United States, if I remember correctly, to court. The Supreme Court handed down a decision that um, defeating him on the basis that he was Negro and he didn't have full rights. That was the basis of the Dred Scott. Now imagine how that would have taken then. Because that decision, all it did is antagonize the conflict between North and South. We went to war shortly after that. That decision played a major role in leading us into the Civil War. Is everybody following? Because the decision was, he's, he's Negro. So he doesn't have full rights of a citizen. He's less than a man. That was the basis of the decision. We fought a war. By the way, this is crucial. Sorry for this. This is why I wanted to get on. Um, I love law. I, I, part of me, if reincarnation were true, I'd like to come back as a lawyer. But um, I just think law is so important. And um, this decision would not have been made, it would not have been made if there had not been a number of Catholics on that board who loved law and put their focus there. They read law really well. I think America is an extraordinary country because of its legal tradition, because of its commitment to law. Let me just make that flat out. In one of Lincoln's most famous addresses, two of the addresses that are really important if you love these things, one of them was called the, uh, um, the Lyceum Address. There were two addresses. One of them was Lyceum, and I can't remember. In one of them, he was addressing an alcoholic group, and I can't, sorry, my mind is going. But what he was addressing was the lawlessness of that time. America was becoming lawless, and it bothered him. It really concerned him. His argument was to the alcoholic group. This was out like a prototype of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said um, he didn't want people coming to preach to this group who had not been alcoholics, because they would have been in their heads. He wanted people who had been alcoholics who recovered to, to recover because he said it's only those people who bear these sins who will know what to say to people who are struggling with alcohol. It's just an amazing man. Lincoln was an extraordinary figure. Um, but he said, he said in that address, if I remember, he said, America was committed to a proposition. It was committed to doing something no regime had ever done in history before. It was committed to the proposition that all men are created equal under God. I mean, there's the Declaration, the Constitution. That was a proposition. He put it that way. He said, it was yet to be proved that America could only be as good as it could be 
to the degree to which it lived up to that proposition because it was not a settled thing. That means we always have to fight for it. It can never be settled. We either keep fighting or we're gone. Because what we were trying to do as a democracy, a, a republic democracy, had never been done before. That was Lincoln. So I love law. I love law. I love law. And I love our legal tradition. One of the great ironies for me is after the Dred Scott, we should have learned law is fundamental to us as a people, but all things cannot be settled by law. And I'm not saying we're supposed to go out as holy world or people of faith and knock over law. We are called to be lawful people. But the war showed that not everything can be settled by law or reason. That a point may come where we may have to risk our lives, give up our lives for this. So even though law is inferior to faith on a scale of values, it called us to something essential to our identity as an American people. So if you look at these, if you look at these court cases that I'm putting down here, I'm, I'm only listing them because there are a number of important court cases that, that were reversed. And you can imagine the effect at the time because they were long-standing, so when they were reversed, the, the country went nuts. When Marbury reversed Missouri Compromise, Dred Scott and Roe Wade, because people had lived according to those statutes for a long time. Is everybody following? The point I just wanted to make here, Roe is not an ex exception. There are a number of court cases that were treated as precedences for our country for a long time. It, 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 it gave us an identity, and yet at some point they were overturned. So the argument here was that the argument that um, in Roe Wade that um, an abortion was protected under the Constitution was overturned because the Supreme Court justice in this case said it should have never been enacted because there's no, there's nothing in the Constitution that protects an abortion. There are a number of amendments, the first, the second, there's a number of men, amendments that suggest private rights. They suggest them, but they never, they never identify them. So the argument was that um, there, there, you can find implied protection of private rights in the Constitution, but none of them gave a right to abortion. And they said they should never, they should never have passed it, and it's overturned. And you, can, you all know the effect of that because there are lots of people in the country who are outraged because they think that was our law. How can you overturn a law? I'm only putting this forward because I want you to see that this is not unusual and it's important for all of us to know our Constitution and our legal tradition. It's absolutely, it's crucial for us. As One of the distinguishing marks of, for us as Catholics and Christians, C.S. Lewis is going to make this in his argument, is the natural law tradition. God has a divine law. We've been called to obedience. The question for us is always, do the laws on our books always conform to God's divine law? If not, our laws are out of tune with God. We fought a civil war because the laws 
protecting slavery, we're out of tune with God's laws. The laws on abortion are out of tune with his laws. It's absolutely crucial for us as Catholics to know that natural law tradition. So if it's not clear right now, I'm expecting all of you to enroll in law school <laughs> next week. Sorry? I said this is a good reason to have a dinner. What's that? That the that it was overturned. Yeah, yes. To celebrate? Celebrate. Yeah, good for you. Yeah. Anyway, I just want so if you look at my notes, I just put some notes in the back. Now, how does this I've got how does this bear on C.S. Lewis? Okay, I want to read this because this sort of does it for me. If you look on my notes on page um I want, truly, I want to get to Lewis. If you look on my notes, on the, on the last page, on page six, Harry Blackman, in the decision Bowers and Hardwick in 1986, this had to do with um, a law, I think it was in Mississippi, I can't remember where, somewhere in the South, which forbid homosexual acts. And it involved an instance where I think some police entered the house of a man who was having homosexual relations with another man and they took him to jail and I think the case was that that was an invasion of his privacy okay so it went it went finally to the Supreme Court this was a major a major legal precedent in the United States this case Bauer Hardwick and Blackman gave the major dissenting opinion you all know this, right? I mean, somebody's going to give the major affirmative and somebody will give the major negative. Blackman gave the major negative. He said, the fact that individuals define themselves in a significant way through their intimate sexual relationships with others suggests that much of the richness of a relationship will come from the freedom that an individual has to choose the form and nature of these intensely personal bonds. So that what he was saying is that people have the right to do whatever they want in the privacy of their home. There's a soundness to that. We don't want, we don't want to support an invasion of privacy. We do not want, I don't, I do not want police. If policemen came into my house, I'd respect policemen and law. If policemen came into my house, I'd have a lot to say. You know, I just, I wouldn't want them in. And that's not because I don't respect the law, it's because there are boundaries to the law. He, he, the basis of his decision was basically that what goes on in the privacy of our home just is our own business. There's a truth to that. But the question that he overlooked is, are there norms to our behavior? What is C.S. Lewis saying? Once you deny those norms, the position you're taking is actually going to lead to your own destruction. Because there are norms. Now, I hope everybody's seen the problem here, because this is not an easy problem. How do we legislate morality like that and still protect the privacy of somebody's own home? Is everybody following? So this was a stunning dissent. It, I mean, it sort of gave away things. In rendering the decision he did, he gave no importance to human norms or nature because the nature of man is irrelevant. The primacy is the privacy of our own homes and in, in our age, the absolute power a person has to have that person's choice to determine his own life. So a woman can take the life of a child um, on, the, on the basis that her private choice has that kind of importance. 
So what's going on relates directly to what Lewis is arguing. That there is a way of nature, we are called to it to give our obedience. We live in a world in which that nature is denied. The challenge that it poses to us, can we in our own families, can we in our workplace, can we in our community, make an argument answering that? So the work that we've been doing since we picked up again with um, Fide Ratio, Regensburg, has been going to the logos, the existence of a logos in nature, yeah? It goes directly to this thing. And we're now at a point where C.S. Lewis is making the same argument, but he titles the book Abolition of Man. That if we persist in this way, we're going, um, we're taking actions that will lead to our own destruction, our own abolition. So let me stop there. I, I don't, I don't want to make this about the Supreme Court decision. I just wanted to not miss this chance. So was, was all of that clear? You understand what the relevance of this to Lewis and what he's doing? Um, and notice the self-control that Lewis exhibits in arguing that he's taking on two men and making an argument and he's doing everything he can to keep his argument clear to make his case. Let me stop. I just, just I don't want to, I don't want to go beyond this. I really want to get to abolition of man, but I didn't, I didn't want to start without acknowledging what just happened to and the relevance of this to the work we've been doing. So, any comments or questions or anything you guys want to do for a minute? Yeah. Down there. Yeah. My daughter was getting married. She got married at St. Uh, Mary's Old Cathedral in downtown Austin. Congratulations. It was beautiful. Yeah. But anyway, that was all going on down there. Yeah. It's going on across the country. Yeah. Yeah, in some places more violently than others. It's just. Mm -hmm. Lots of policemen on horses, but I didn't see any violence, which was good. Yeah. They were. They they had their shields on the. You know, yeah. I, we were just waiting for something to When we went to church on, we, we go to church on Saturday evenings, and I was in signing up because Suzanne and I used to have ministries where you either reading or Eucharistic ministers, and somebody new came into the, the room where we sign up and we introduced ourselves. He was a new security guard, mm -hmm. and I'd seen him before, so we introduced ourselves, and he was making the point that they were all on guard. You know, I, I, you know, I knew it in my head, but I didn't put it to St. Francis, but they were on guard. You know, it's just the, I mean, all the churches are on guard. Uh, um, and I read this morning that um, there's a suburb of Atlanta that wants to secede from the state, and that there are areas in Oregon that want to secede and, and align with aligning state. I mean, it's just... They want to what? Hmm? What'd you say? That 
um, I think a suburb in Atlanta wanted to secede to withdraw it, its um, identity from Atlanta to just, because the lawlessness has become so great, it's so much a part of the state that they wanted to dissociate themselves from it and make a, a new state. Um, the, there were, the, the police force in Atlanta was down by 160 men, my God. And you know that criminals are being turned loose on the state. See, God. You know, I wish some, God, I, I don't like, sorry, I don't like thinking this way, but I wish some of the people who make these laws could be affected by them, that somebody that they've released would, you know, be in their face so they could actually experience the effects of their decisions. Anyway, let's, if there's no comments, let me stop because I know our feelings about this are deep and I'd I just wanted to comment Go. that I appreciate you bringing our attention to both of those arguments, the argument of nature and the precedence of overturning, because I think those are good arguments. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Anne. Yeah. They're essential. I mean, they really deserve a closer look, but this isn't the time. It's just, but it's important for all of us to have some sense of our constitution, what's at issue here? For us not to know that is not a good thing. And also the legal precedences, you know, what's the big, because that's Lewis's argument. I'm, that's where I'm gonna go right now. What's the basis on which we make these arguments? Where do we go? What do we turn to, you know? Anyway, let's stop, okay? Let's go to Reckler Ditchlin and, and then we'll go to abolition. I'm going to try this. I've not done this before, but I'm supposed to be off my feet. And um, I'm going to, I'm not doing very well at this, but this is good. This is good. See how this goes. Let's, let's do, um, remember when we talked last week, the, the tall lioness sister cried out for Christ, remember? Um, this is stanza 24. I want to read um, a section that takes us to the end of Hopkins' treatment of the shipwreck. Is everybody okay? And then I'm going to leave it. And then we have one more section to go. After that, he's going to turn from the shipwreck back to the present um, in his study and his concern for England. It's going to end with a prayer for England. So we'll do that next week. But I want to finish the shipwreck here. So remember in 24, away in the lovable west on a pastoral forehead. Now remember, he's one of the great things. This is really interesting. It, it's so... It's so relevant to what we're doing. Hopkins is considered one of the greatest innovators in the English language. After Shakespeare, iambic pentameter, traditional English verse, it's almost like it reached its apex and there was nowhere to go. So after you get Milton with a new verse and, and Hopkins. But Hopkins does something that Milton does. Milton uses syntax forms that show he's... Milton had six or seven languages, Latin, French, German. I mean, so his syntax gets really difficult. It's not an English syntax. It's hard to follow. Is that clear? Because the syntax is not ours. So when you read Milton, 
it, it, it's a complicated structure in language. In Hopkins, it's not. He's following English verse, but he's also going back to Anglo-Saxon, to our roots. So he's combining adjectives like, remember when we did Wreck of the Deutschland? Uh, dappled, dawn, drawn. He puts three adjectives together to modify a noun. Dappled, dawn, drawn. It's a complex, so he's showing that, that when we're describing something, it's never just adequate to say a bright sun, you know, because there's a lot more going on with the sun. So when he says dappled, dawn, drawn, he's got four adjectives modifying a noun. And his use of alliteration, the strong alliteration, boom, 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 are Anglo-Saxon um, qualities. So he's doing something in modern English that nobody had done. So he's one of the greatest innovators, but it also means it's hard to read. It's not easy to read, okay? But just be aware of that, that those are qualities that he brings to his verse because in his mind it gave a power. It's like when you, <laughs> when somebody behind a mic gets emphatic and goes like, <laughs> goes like that, <laughs> you know, that you give a sort of power to your words. Um, so he's trying to stay close to our spoken language and the way we give emphasis to words by the power with which we speak them, okay? Stanza 24. Away in the lovable west on a pastoral forehead of Wales. Can you hear the alliteration? Away, west, Wales, yeah? I was under a roof here, I was at rest. And they, the prey of the gales, she to the black about air. The black about air. There's a combination again, right, of, of adjectives. The black about air to the breaker, the thickly falling flakes. There's that alliteration. Boom, boom. Falling flakes to the throne, the throng that catches and quails was calling, oh Christ, Christ, come quickly. The cross to her she calls, Christ to her, christens her wild worst best. You hear the alliteration? Cross calls, Christ christens, yeah. So here's where we left off, okay? And I'll just read forward and we'll um, get through it. He's asking, why did she call? What was going, is, okay, that's where we left off, right? Why was she calling? That's his question. What was she doing? What was behind her? The majesty, what did she mean? Breathe, breath, arch and original breath. Is it love in her of the being as her lover had been, like Christ? Breathe, sorry, breath. Breath, is that right? Breathe, body of lovely death. They were else-minded then altogether. The men woke thee with the we are perishing and the weather just, um, just centereth. The men have their minds elsewhere. They want to save the ship, they're sailors. Yeah, that's what sailors should do. She's got her mind in Christ. This catastrophe is going on. It's like being in the middle of the earthquake when a crack opens up underneath your feet and everybody's scrambling to save themselves and somebody's going, Christ. Christ. They were else-minded then altogether. The men woke thee with the we are perishing in the weather of Tesereth. Tesereth. Or is it that she cried for the crown then the keener to come at the comfort for feeling the combating keen. Remember, one of the reasons for alliteration, like keener, come, comfort, combating, right? You hear that, right? 
One of the reasons for that is because alliteration very often gives you a sense that you're imitating the actual thing going on. It's like a roughness or some bumpiness or something of that quality. When Hop in the wind hover, when hoppers were discovering the flight of the bird, they were all sibilants because he was describing a bird in the flight. You know, he's trying to help us feel to end, to participate in that moment. For how do the hearts cheering the down dug ground hug gray hovers off the jay blue heavens appearing of pied and peeled may. Blue beating and hoary glow height. Isn't that beautiful? He keeps combining these things so that adjectives are, com are complex as there's several things going on to a moment, not just one. With belled fire and the moth's soft milky way, what by your measure is the heaven of desire? The treasure never eyesight, eyesight got, nor was ever guessed what for the hearing. No, but it was not these. It was not any of those. The jading and jar of the cart, the bumpiness of, say, a working woman taking a cart, the jading and jar of the cart, times tasking. Think about the um, burdens of a, of a woman watching her children through the day with a million things she has to do. The jading and jar of the cart, times tasking. It is fathers that asking for ease of the sodden with its sorrowing heart. The way you move through a day with your burdens and sometimes are overtaken by sorrow. Not danger, electrical horror. Then further it finds the appealing of the passion is tender in prayer apart. Other I gather in measure her mind's burden in winds burly and beat of in dragon seas. It's a raging sea, it's a dragon, it's fierce. At the center of her heart, the very center, even if she's moving about to get things done, there is this appeal to the passion. But how shall I make me room there, reach me? He's a poet, right at that moment, he wants to get to her, right? He's one with her. But he doesn't want to stay on surfaces. She's dying. She's calling to Christ. How shall I make me room there? Reach me a fancy come faster. Strike you the sight of it? Look at it loom there? Thing that she... I can hear him, remember in that verse earlier, said, Oh, you have such an exquisite heart, do you? Feeling all of this, do you? He's struggling to try to get past his own feelings to be with her completely. Look at it loom there, thing that she... There, then, the Master. Ipsy, the only one, Christ, King, Head. Ipsy, the thing itself. It was not for rewards. This is so crucial. She was not there for rewards. She deserved this. She was not trying to escape it. She was not trying to bear these burdens. She wanted to be with Christ himself. Ipsy, the only one, Christ King had. He was to cure the extremity where he had cast her, where he had cast her. Do deal, Lord, it with living and dead. Let him ride her pride in his triumph. Dispatch and have done with his doom there. Ah, uh, there was a heart right. Remember, she's the only one who called out Christ. There was a heart right. There was a single eye only on him. 
Read the unshapable shock night and knew the who and the why, wording it how, but by him that present and past, heaven and earth are word of, worded by, all things are of him, about him, and he's the one who speaks them. The Simon Peter of a soul, to the blast tarpian fast, but a blow beacon of light. Jesu, heart's light, Jesu, made sun, what was the feast following the night? Thou hadst glory of this nun. Christ, you had glory of her in the midst of her trial. Thou hadst glory of this nun, feast of the one woman without stain. For so conceived, so to conceive thee is done. But here was heart's throw, birth of a brain, word that heard and kept thee and uttered thee outright. Though she has thee for the pain, for the patience, but pity of the rest of them, heart go and bleed at a bitter vein for the comfortless unconfessed of them. The rest didn't have him. Yeah? They had other things. They didn't turn to Christ. Comfortless, unconfessed. So at the moment, if I can put it this way, at the, at, at the moment of her... Uh, let's call it the crucifixion. At the moment, at her greatest pain, she is with Christ. There's no escape. She's not asking, save me, give me my reward, this is what I deserve, look how good I am. She is saying, Christ. No, not uncomforted, lovely, felicitous providence, finger of a tender of, oh, of a feathery delicacy, the breast of the maiden could obey so, be a bell to ring of it. In everything she does, she displays Christ and startle the poor sheep back. Is the shipwreck, shipwreck then a harvest? Does tempest carry the grain for thee? Is this a harvest? Everybody in the world, in worldly terms, is going to look at it nothing but bad. He's saying there's all this fruit to come from it. That's the cross. The cro By the way, the, the, the central intuition of Father Stu is suffering. If you've seen the movie, you know. It's, I, don't want to, I, don't want, I don't want to give the movie away, but it's affirming. It won't do what the faith-based movies do. It will not go there. It's saying you, you're not going to get back to a comfortable world. <laughs> and this is Hopkins at the end. Lovely, felicitous providence, finger of a tender of, oh, of a feathery delicacy, the breast of the maiden could abase so be a bell to ring of it and startle the poor sheep back. Is the shipwreck then a harvest? Does tempest carry the grain for thee? He's asking questions. And God knows all of this. God allows it. Are we to think that he's a cruel God? He doesn't care? Or is this, for, the, for those who can see it, an offering of grace? Oh. Oh, it's getting worse. <laughs> okay. We will we'll finish the Rack of the Dutchland next week, okay? Um, let's start. Sorry it's so late. I'm getting to this. If you look at the board, if you look at the board, you'll see that... Um, 
If you look at the board, you'll see that um, I've, I've broken down the way, the second chapter, into three parts. The first part deals with instincts, the second reason, and the third, this question they ask, what happens if we give all of this up? Um, I, I want to take just a second to try to lay out the first chapter, and then I want to go to the book and, and read some quotes to get us in the book. But let me see if I can do justice to this. Suzanne asked what the whole chapter is about when we were on the way, and I wish I'd had it recorded because it was, I don't know if I can be clear again, but remember in um, chapter one, Lewis is um, taking the position that if people lived out the life of Gaius and Titus, who were two typical teachers of their time, that it would lead to the destruction of man. That's his argument. Because both of them are taking the position that there's nothing outside of us that's real, that has any value in itself. That when people look at something outside of themselves, they're only talking about their own feelings. And they to say that it's only their feelings is to debunk them, to demean them, to lessen them. So what they're doing is taking away value both from the objective world, the, the, the um, sublimity, the sublimity of a waterfall, let it be Christ. If God were to appear, could you imagine him appear in, in any other way than in glory or power? I mean, that's the, those are the words we're given, that when he returns, it'll be in power and judgment and glory. If you minimized any of that, and the way in which doing that minimizes our feelings, it takes away our hearts. So the practical effect of their philosophy of life is to take away the human heart to demean it. It makes it easier to stuff our feelings. I think that's the phrase they use in AA. You know, you deny your feelings, you, you know, get your feelings, because when you stuff them, how in the world do you react to anything? How do you love, how do you get angry at the right thing? You know, it's just... So he, he's making the argument that that philosophy will actually lead to the destruction of man. In the way, the second chapter, I want to read the opening. I want to go through some of the passages, but in the minute. But let me see if I can outline this. He says, since Gaius and Titus um, take emotions as their focus and deny them, demean them, um, let me go at this another way. Neither Gaius nor Titus can give an explanation for what they do. They cannot because they've already taken away the objective reality of the world or the objective reality of their own feelings. Okay, neither of those have the meaning that they should have. So I said, to what do they appeal to justify their argument? Is everybody okay? If, if I lose you anywhere, stop me. They, they can't make an appeal. So to pick up the argument, he says, if we turn to anybody to give us a reason for their argument, we find in the current way in which people think about things, we can't get anywhere. Lots of people are going to say instincts. That's the basis of whatever we do. He wants to use as a test case self-preservation. That the basic instinct for all human beings is to preserve their life. So he takes that as a, he's just hypothetically making an argument. So if these people can't give a reason for their position, they will turn to something basic like self-preservation. That's an absolutely modern start. Absolutely. It's absolutely modern. If you go to Hobbes and Locke and 
Rousseau, the, what we call the social contract theory. The basis of the modern world is social contract. I won't do this to you if you don't do this to me. Social contract. That's the basis of our political identity. The assumption is all men are in a state of war. If we're left to ourselves, we'll kill each other because the most important thing to us is preserving our life. I want to live. And if it means the only way I can live is killing you, I'll do that. So in order to avoid that state of war, we make a compromise. It's called a social contract. I won't do this to you if you don't do this to me. But the basis of it is fear, pride, self-preservation. Is that clear? So he's taking that on, head on. So if you appeal to self-preservation and by extension the preservation of the species, what do we have? So he explores the instincts and says there's a whole host of instincts. On what basis do we choose one over another? Honor your parents, respect your children, you know, whatever it is. Justice is important. Do just, be just. And he shows that at a level of instinct, we can't defend any of them because each one of them has a claim on its own. It's absolute. If you listen to your instincts, you know that at a certain point, it's going to be one thing and at another point, it's going to be another thing. If you want to eat, you eat. If you want to have sex, you're going to have sex. If you're going to drink, you know, it's, those are the appetites taking over. But he, so he fleshes out that position and arrives at a point and says this, and this is where it gets, I think, tricky, I'm assuming for you guys. He says, if you take a data of human perception, human experience, um, I want to eat, or I like meat, or I don't want to die, so I'm afraid of things that threaten my life, whatever the basic instinct is, you cannot get from a perception in the indicative, this is so, I like food, or I want to live. You cannot get from a premise in the indicative, this is so, the indicative mood. You cannot get from a premise in the indicative to a conclusion in the imperative, you ought to do this. That's a piece of logic. And he says, you can go on trying forever, you won't, get, you won't do it. Hold on. I wish, I don't, I don't know, just here, see, can you hear me okay? It's, um, it's a piece of logic. This is sort of basic in a logic class. Let's say you take the premise, all men are mortal. All men are mortal, yeah? Socrates is a man. What's the conclusion? Right? If you have a major premise like all men are mortal and you put Socrates in it, Socrates is here, he's included in that major premise so you can make a logical conclusion and say Socrates is mortal, right? Could you say all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore he's immortal? Is that logical? No, it's not. You can't draw that conclusion, okay? So when you start with a premise, if you start in the indicative mood mode, you say something is so, you cannot, you cannot get to a conclusion in the imperative. You ought to do this. To get to a conclusion in the Yeah, to get to a conclusion in the imperative, what has to be your premise? It has to be a, come on you guys, it has to be a premise in the imperative. 
this ought to be done, he did this, this ought to be, you know. So as a, moder as a matter, of, so here's what's interesting about what Lewis is doing, it's so good. He's showing that instinct by itself is not rational. He, say, he even says it's not irrational, it's neither. What you do with it will make it rational. So we can take data from our personal experiences, um, but we can't get to a conclusion about them without an act of reflection. And we can't get from something in the indicative to something in the um, imperative without starting with something in the imperative to say this ought to be done. Okay? Is everybody following? So wait, just so wait, let me. So he takes instincts and examines them and then reaches a point. I'll, we'll go over it, I'll read the text. But he's saying, you cannot get to an, an imperative, you cannot get to an inclusion without starting with an imperative. And he goes on to make the argument that every one of these practical pieces of data honor your parents, respect children, respect life, do whatever they are, those are the basis of rationality. He says they are rationality itself. They're not the conclusions that you arrive at from something else, they are the premises. You have to start with those as self-evident, because if something isn't self-evident, you can't make an argument. You have to start with something that's so. So all of those um, pieces of sort of traditional wisdom are rationality itself. They're the basis of argument. It's from those, here, I mean, let me give an example. Let's say, let's say one of the pieces of this is um, honor your parents. So your, your kid, your son, does something and is disrespectful. What do you say? It's on the basis of your belief that it's essential, it's a self-evident principle that you honor your parents, that you say to your child, that's not a good thing to do. It's not going to make you a better person, it's not going to help you, you know, it's not going to make... So on the basis of that, you can have a discussion, you can lay out an argument, you can do things, you can draw a conclusion. Is everybody following? So that's the middle, hold on, I'm just, so that's the middle part of the second chapter, the way. And at the end he says, so lots of the moderns say, well let's just get rid of the Tao, all of this body of rationality, the Tao, the, what, is, what is itself, the being, all of these things. Let's get rid of it all together and make ourselves our own masters. We can create our own world, we can make the world in our own image. And that's where he ends and he says, but to answer that question, I've got to take up a new chapter. And that leads him into the third chapter. But that's basically the, the structure of the second chapter. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Can you, can, you, can you speak up? Or the, conse the consequences are implied, yeah, right. So it's very primitive, and you realize what's going on in the world today. Yeah, right, right. So how they are reacting to everything, they're thinking what works for them, in their world, and they're saying to people, we're not going to do that, we're 
not God, we're not man-made, we're God-made. Yeah, but people, yes, but, but people, right. So many people don't begin like that today. Yes. We've got to, yeah. Uh, yeah, we've got to, that's one of the challenges that we have to, I mean, that's one of the things we have to include in our, but by the way, that's what Lewis is doing. He doesn't use the word God, he's using the word, he's trying, I think, deliberately to, um, to not use terms that would immediately turn people off. So he's using neutral terms. And it's really clever, subtle what he's doing because he could have used God or God's order, but he doesn't. I think that's his way of appealing to intellectuals logically. So that if you buy into his argument, if you see the logic of it, and you, and you see that you can't answer his conclusions, whether you know it or not, you've taken a step in the direction of God, even though he never used God. Right. 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 Yeah. Okay. And can we go on? Any? Yeah. Without the Tao. So he deals with instincts, and then he makes this turn using logic, and then he ends it by saying, "Let's get rid of it all. Let's scrap it all." and see what happens. Let's get rid of the doubt altogether. Um, let's be masters of our own fate. The, the popular word in, our, in literary circles is um, self-fashioning. You fashion your own world, you create your own world. The self-fashioning you make yourself. Um, so let's take that on. That's what he's going to do in the third chapter. Before we go on, sorry, before we, before we go on, last week, and this is, this is the start of um, I don't know if I'm going to make it. This is the start of our talk today, but remember last week, Lewis said, Plato had said it a long time ago, because he was talking about ordering the soul, and he said Plato had spoken about the legislative part of the soul, that the legislative part directs the emotions, that it helps bring them under control, because the emotions by themselves are irrat. Irra not in the sense that they're against reason, they're not rational, they're not one or the other, they're, they're there. The question is, what will people do with the emotions? And he gave Plato. I want to go back to two, we've done this before, but just by way of review. Remember in Plato's Republic, Plato said, he used the cave allegory, and he said, all of us are in a cave, yeah? And this was his allegory. It was his way of describing the predicament all of us are in. All of us. Me, Suzanne, all of us. We're all in a cave. There's a fire, a light behind us. The people in front of it are carrying books. I should have put that there. They're carrying books. Because they're reading. The, the, the way they look at the world is through literature. Right? Can, is there anybody in this room who has an idea that they didn't get from a book? It's never happened. They're all carrying books. It's the way they read. And that reading shapes the way they look at the world. So they look in front of them and the light from the fire behind them casts shadows on the wall. So these are images or shadows, right? And people take the images or shadows as reality itself. But they're deceptive because they're not real. They're shadows. So we look at the world and we see things and we take those things as reality. 
and we're deceived. And remember, those of you who have seen this before, remember that one of the person questions those shadows. He breaks free because all these people down here below are chained. They're all in chains. One of the persons asks questions, and the fact that he questioned things frees him, and he begins his ascent up the cave until he comes into the light. Okay? So for Plato, the beginning of wisdom, this is, this is biblical, this is scriptural, this is philosophical. The beginning of wisdom is asking questions to wonder. That's the beginning of wisdom. I've said this again and again. If we ever stop wondering or asking questions, we're dead. Questions don't belong to kids, they belong to all of us. It's asking questions. That means starting, even, I'm 80, even if you're 80 years old, you start with some wonder that the awesomeness, the amazingness of the world, and you wonder, what's the meaning of that? What's going on? What does that mean? You know, you ask questions. When you do that, you begin to get free of the shadows. And that's the ascent, the philosophic ascent out of the cave. Okay? So, so for Plato, his argument was the soul has three faculties, reason and appetites. And appetites take two forms, it's desires. Either desire for higher things like truth, beauty, and honor, or for bodily things. Now let me go through that again. And I, 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 I want to be really clear here because lots of people say, posit this. He posits it. He's not positing anything. He's drawing this picture based on actual experience. If any of us went, if any of us were in a desert, just, I mean, you can imagine this, if any of us were in a desert, I'm going to give two examples here. If any of us were in a desert and you got thirsty, so your appetites, your desires, you wanted water, and you went to a pool, and next to the pool was a sign that said poison, what would you do? You wouldn't drink, your appetite, I mean, your, your mind would say a problem, right? So you can either drink or you can reflect on your thing and say, I've got a choice here, but you've got a choice to either go ahead or not. So you can either follow something or not. So Plato's allegory is not based on hypothetical thoughts, it's based on experience. Let me give another example, because what he's saying is, Reason controls the app. Sorry. God, it's getting worse. Wow. Sorry. Sorry. Reason. Sorry. Reason controls the appetites by means of that middle element. Chester, or Lewis is saying the same thing. Men without chest. Reason controls the appetites by means of that chest, that middle elements. That's where good emotions are formed. That's his art. That's platonic, through and through. Is everybody okay? Reason controls the appetites, the desire for physical things by means of this. So both of these are appetites. The lower, so it's reason and the appetites. The appetites take two forms, one for higher things and one for lowing. The Greeks called this middle appetite thumos anger. When you love higher things, beauty, truth, beauty, truth, goodness, those are the transcendentals, you long for those and you fight for them. That was Achilles, that was Odysseus, that was Aeneas, that was Dante, that's all the people we've read. 
You fight for those things. So let me use another example. Two teenagers are in, their parents are gone, they're sitting at home on a couch watching a movie and there's a sexual scene. And reason says, you don't do anything right now. And their appetites say, do something right now. How well, how able is reason at that moment capable of answering those appetites? Who's going to win out in that moment? Generally, let me say, generally speaking, you stop. <laughs> generally speaking, taking away my bite here. Generally speaking, who's, what's going to happen? You all know, right? I mean, you give in to your passions, drinking, sex, whatever it is. It's only, it's only if those middle appetites are strong enough that reason has an ability to control the lower appetites. So the most important thing is, con is learning to form those good emotions, to make them good so that the human soul can answer those lower appetites when they push, right? And the other example he gave in, the, it's a, in a book called The Phaedrus is using the charioteer. He said the, the reason is the charioteer and he's driving two horses, one is the white and the black. The black is the lower appetites for the physical things, food, sex, you know, it's all those things, our bodies. Plato was not very fond of the body. It's, it's, one, of the, it's one of the reasons I have reservations about Plato, but I mean, there's an extraordinary wisdom of this, but um, the charioteer controls the black horse by means of the white horse. Take the white horse away and the black horse would be out of control. That's C.S. Lewis's argument, right? Men without chests. It's only by developing good emotions that we are capable of fully realizing who we are as humans. And his argument is that Gaius and um, Tidius are not doing that because they're taking away the whole ground of emotion. They're taking away the reality outside and they're taking away any ground for learning to order our emotions, to love the things that we should love and to hate the things that we should hate. Now let me stop. That's just that's a quick overview of the first two chapters. Anybody, anybody have any questions? Robert, you've got a sorry. Go ahead. How does one form good emotions? Oh God! Wow! Wow! Any mothers and okay? Here, let me because this is such. You do these things. Um, okay, I mean, obviously we could spend a whole week, yeah, seven nights talking about that. Let me just try to make this as clear as I can. I, so, this is, I mean, after a, after a lifetime of having made mistakes, you know, failing in lots of ways or you know, looking back and, because this is not the way Suzanne and I started. I mean, this was not our world. Um, but I, I think having you know, reached this point, because I can hear myself talking to our children who are having their own kids right now. So if you believe in these things, if you believe in a God and there's something there worth loving so that you have a reason for correcting yourself, trying to become a better human being, you will try to be more patient, um, more braver, to have the courage to do things in your marriage as parents with your children, 
So, and remember we did that, we, every, every work we've done together has gone, I mean, let me go back to the very beginning when we started, because I didn't want to go to the Iliad, it was too, we started with uh, Merchant of Venice, Shakespeare, in the, in the commercial regime. And I remember saying then, remember Portia had to mediate between two extremes, between Shylock and between the Christians. That, um, and we went through this, I used Plato, if you're called, this is Old Testament. If you're called to be just, which is Old Testament, that's, that's Christ's Father. So directly it's Christ. He came to fulfill the law. That's his Father. If you want to be just to another person, justice means giving another person his due, his or who due, right? Can you do that if you have not ordered your own soul? If your soul is out of order and you, and you believe in justice, won't you make a mess of justice in a lot of what you do because you won't approach it in the right way? So how can you, do, how can you be just to another person if, if that's what you're called to if you've not made your own soul just, if you've not ordered your own soul? Christ himself said, we said it a couple of weeks ago, all sins, all, all sins, every one of them, begins in the heart. It's not the world that's at fault, it's us. We have, we have, Christ's first call was to repent. Yeah, that was the beginning of his ministry. That's Christ's ministry, repent. If we don't carry a spirit of repentance, of correcting ourselves to everything we do, everything, is, I, I mean, I, I hope I'm not misspeaking here. Is there anybody here who believes that they're already perfect and they have nothing to correct anymore before you die? We're asked to, does that mean we don't do anything until we're perfect? No, I don't believe that. No, nobody, Christ didn't say that. Nobody did. Plato and Aristotle. But we have to begin to order our own soul to be honest about our own failings, carry them in everything we do with each other. The danger of not doing that, I'm assuming everybody knows, we get self-righteous, we, we condemn other people, we, I mean, Christ, you'll be measured out to you, whatever, you know. If we don't change ourselves, how can we change the world? And changing the world means being braver, learning to control our emotions, direct so we love what we should, bring that to our kids, our, our marriages, you know. That's the short of it. I mean, I mean obviously, you, you know, you could go everywhere with it, but... Um, I'm speaking for myself, learning to be more patient, trusting in God, being brave, risking, admitting faults, trying to correct yourself. Why, I mean, we, we haven't, we, is there another faith that has what we have? No. I mean, I, I just, why, wait, 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 hold on. Why do we have confession? It's a sacrament. Um, we go to God aware of our sins, wanting to get rid of them and trying to be better and go to Him. Why, otherwise, why go? So our whole life, the, the sacraments are essential to our faith in a way that's not true of the, say, the large fundamentalist world doesn't know. Confession, marriage, the Eucharist. Everything that goes on in our life is to participate in the sacraments to our call is to holiness, to be whole. I, and I don't, I mean, the answer to that, Marilyn, is a cross. I mean, I, we're, the cross is supposed to be at the center of our life. So the short answer of that is we help 
certainly our kids and we help each other by entering into the cross in some way and trying to become better and bring that to everything we do with each other. That's a short of it, but I don't want to take longer, but... Sorry, did you have a, another comment? No, I was just thinking, you know, just to, to better ourselves, I mean, I'm thinking, how do people do it if they don't have our faith? God. I, I don't know how they can... I don't either. It just stuns me. Like you just said, the, the sacraments. Yeah. And, rem and remember uh, Hopkins' words at the end. I mean, he's looking at the... Sh I mean, he says, you know, she's... She's the only one who did that. All the other people have got their minds elsewhere. He's so aware of that. What the difference between them and her. Precisely, you know, in, in the way that you're saying. Here, let's go back to the book. I want to start because I, I want to get to some passages here. I am letting you guys out on time. I am failing again and again. Here, because this is, this is an amazing passage to me. And I'm assuming everybody read right by it. I did. Um, remember, the way begins with that quote from Confucius. It's upon the trunk that a gentleman works. The trunk, the trunk is a metaphor. I hope every, it, a trunk is a metaphor for all of life. Yeah, we're, we're it's like, the, um, I think Anne and Suzanne, you know, the gardeners who, who have metaphors for working in a garden. Except that metaphor for a garden means all of life, so that everything we do is working on the trunk. It's working on every, everything in our life. Our minds, our hearts, our wills, our bodies, our work. Or... Here, that's his quote. I want to read this because it's just an amazing statement to me, and I, I think it's probably lost on most readers. It was lost on me. He begins, remember, at the, he ended the first chapter saying, in a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. God, we take out the heart and then ask people to feel the way they should. How can they do it? Um, we, we, we create that condition and then we're surprised when we get what we get. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. If you don't love somebody, Remember, this is our call freely, whether we're loved or not. How will that person know love? In your head in a Bible? And it's not living. Is everybody following? If we don't love, how is anybody around us going to learn it? When that's our call. And our call is the cross. And I'm assuming everybody knows how hard that is and how much I think most of us want to avoid it. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the um, geldings be fruitful. Okay, that was the ending of... Now, the beginning of two is amazing and it's deceptively um, simple. The practical result of education in the spirit of the Green Book must be the destruction of the society which accepts it. Oh. Excuse me. God, it's just 
here. This is an amazing passage. The practical result is the destruction of the society that works off this principle. But this is not necessarily a refutation of subjectivism about values as a theory. The true doctrine might be a doctrine which if we accept we die, no one who speaks from within the Tao could reject it on that account. And they fake olesun is the Greek. But it has not yet come to that. There are theoretical difficulties in the philosophy of Gaius and Titus. Now hold on. That Greek phrase is from the Iliad. It's, it's, a, it's, almost, it's an amazing line. It's a giveaway line. And I want to take a second with it here. In the Iliad, if you remember, Achilles is withdrawn for the war. The Trojans are defeating the Achaeans. Patroclus' dearest friend comes and says, let me go into the war, I'll wear your armor. Patroclus goes into the war, Hector kills him. And in the 16th book, there's a fight over Patroclus' armor, or Achilles' armor. Hector gets it and puts it on. When he gets it on, the, the battle turns again because Patroclus had actually taken the battle to Troy. Achilles said, do not go to Troy, that's left for me to do. So it's Patroclus trying to do something he shouldn't have done. He was trying to be Achilles when he was not. Everybody who wears Achilles, we've talked about this. It's, an, it's one of the most amazing books that will ever be written. He tries to be somebody he's not, and he dies. Hector tries to be Achilles. He wears his armor. He dies. Homer is showing us there's this honor peculiar to man who does what Achilles does, and that means be honest about yourself, give up. Remember, he got new armor. When he admitted his mistakes, he gets new armor. There's that turn in the Iliad, which just to me is one of the most amazing things in all of literature. It's only when he confesses his weaknesses and admits his faults that he gets new armor, he goes back into the war, nobody can stop him. It's like a man in AA saying, I'm an alcoholic. Once you admit that, what do you have to be afraid of? If you've been hiding your life because you're an alcoholic, and you take that away, you admit it, what are you afraid of? So when man admits his sins, he something comes to him. Hector puts on the armor, he turns the battles, and the, the Greeks are getting defeated again, and he pushes them back. Right at that moment, Aias turns to Zeus, and he says, help us. He says, if anybody, this is amazing, this is where, it's, it's, it's C.S. Lewis's quote, and nobody's going to see it, it's just, unless you know that. Aias turns to Zeus and he says, if anybody had their wits, if anybody knew anything, they'd see Zeus is favoring the Trojans right now. It's like he's saying it's fatalistic. Anias has not been fatal. He's the strongest, next to Achilles, is the strongest man. But he says, Zeus has got this. It's like somebody saying, end times are now. I can read the end times. You know, anybody who doesn't see it is stupid. Are you following? So he says, we're doomed. Zeus, and you, you can't miss it. God's on their side. It's a little bit like six months, or let's say a year ago saying, God's on the side of the left. He's favoring abortion. Look what's it, we're, you know, abortion's taken over. It's like somebody saying, it's faded. That's the way it is. And everybody's going to believe that. That's the way it should be. Is everybody following? That's what Ayas is saying. And then he says, nobody's seen it. We're all in the darkness. Zeus, give us light. Zeus, give us light. And then he says, find a messenger to go to Achilles and tell Achilles his dearest friend has been killed because if he does, he'll come back into the war. And you know that's what happens. 
But in this moment, he says, find a messenger. I can't find one. I can't find one. There's nobody around. Um, if we're going to die, Zeus, let us die in the light. That's this quote. Let us die in the light. Now hold on to that because people will read that and entirely miss the meaning. And let me, let me try to enlarge on it. Longinus, a great pagan writer, wrote a book on the sublime. The sublime. What did this book begin with? The waterfall and Coleridge's comment about the couple. You know, it was sublime. And Gaius and Titus blew it off. Remember? It began with an image of sublimity, this beauty of nature, and the way people blew it off. Here in the Iliad, there's this moment when Aias is turning to Zeus and say, if we're going to die, let us die by the light, let us die in the light. It's a little bit like saying, like the nun in Hopkins, if I'm going to die, if I'm going to die, let me die in the light of that crucifixion. It's exactly like that woman with Hopkins saying, she saw something. She was in something nobody else was in. I don't think I can say that strongly enough. Are you all following? It's like in a moment, it, it's, like, it's like wanting to see the truth, knowing that if you see it, it's going to kill you. I'm going to die. It's like wanting to look on God's light when you know if you looked on his light, it would burn you to a crisp. But you'd want to die there in that light. If I'm going to die, let it be there. Is everybody following? That's a stunning line. Why did Lewis use it? No one who speaks for within the Tao could reject it on that account. He gives the Greek quote, I'm going to die, let it be in the light. But it's not yet come to that. Before we ever get to that point of ultimate realities where we have to risk our lives to die in the light. I'm saying that tr sort of truthfully right now with a, you know, in our marriages or in a family. <laughs> you know, I gave you this statistic last week that 70% of Catholics don't believe in the real presence. You know? Is it safe to say that most of us, or a lot of us, would like to think that we could die in the light of Christ when we die? Whatever the cost, I mean, doing something in a marriage with our wife or our wife with our husband or, you know, t to be in that light with Christ, to die in it there, not in some compromise or going through the motions. Are you all falling? Because it's such a difficult notion, this image of sublimity, the, the um, almost um, fatal quality of the light. The, only, the closest thing that I can get to it with us in our, is the cross that out of that cross came this blinding light. Um, it's not comfort and where we want to be and it's doing those things that we don't want to do when the cost of it is a cross and we're with Christ. So he's saying, but we're not there yet. But to, for him to say that means the Tao for him is not just a mental construct. It's not an abstraction. The Tao is everything. That's what he's been arguing all along. If you pick and choose in the Tao, you're cutting it apart. The Tao is everything. It's our life. 
it's the Jewish law, it's the way, you know, it's um, all, the, all the metaphor, the way. Um, so, um, what, he, what he does is, is do what I suggested a little bit ago. He's going to look at this question of instincts, and he says on 44 um, that um, Gaius and Titus can't appeal to anything. On page 42, he says, they must have or their book, they must have something, some ideal to which they turn to justify what they're doing. He says, they must have or their book is written to no purpose, and this end must have real value in their eyes, to abstain from calling it good and to use instead such predicates as necessary or progressive or efficient, because that's what they use. It's necessary, we have to do this because it's good. They could be forced by argument to answer the question, necessary for what? Progressing towards what? Effecting what? In the last resort, they would have to admit that some state of affairs was in their pigeon good for its own sake, or they wouldn't be doing it. Is everybody clear? They're making all these appeals to this... They, in fact, they've made no appeals. What they've done is argue there's no value in emotion, there's nothing out there, it's only our feelings. And he's saying, that can't be true. If that's true, there's nothing real. We, can't, we have no way of communicating. We have no way of giving value to anything. At the bottom of 42, in actual fact, Gaius and Titus will be found to hold with complete uncritical dogmatism. This goes to your statement earlier. The whole system of values would happen to be in vogue among moderately educated young men of the professional classes during the period between the two wars. Except now, it's entrenched. It's here. And people hold this dogmatic belief that there's nothing there that will make the world what we want. There's no God. Now he goes on and examines all of this. I don't want to go on, but in 45, this is where the argument turns. He says, you can go on debunking by forever, but there has to be some basis, some ground to which you appeal to justify what you're doing. The bottom 44, at this point, the innovator may ask why, after all, selfishness should be more rational or intelligent than altruism. The question's welcome. If by reason we mean the process actually employed by guys and tidies when engaged in debunking, that is, the connecting of inference of propositions ultimately derived from sense data with further propositions. That is, once we get an experience with our senses, we just say, this is so, and we start making inferences, we start to make an argument, we end up making a conclusion. But he says, um, but there's no reason for saying one thing is more rational than another. And no less, neither choice is rational or irrational at all. From propositions about fact alone, no practical conclusion can ever be drawn. This will preserve society, cannot lead to do this, except by the mediation of society ought to be preserved. You cannot get a conclusion in the imperative. We ought to do this unless we start with a premise in the imperative. You all know that. I mean, you are following. So, so if you look at a movie, most of us say the premise of that movie is this. Yeah? If you watch a movie and it's all about violence, you can say the premise of that movie is they believe that there's, the world is meaningless, that all there is is violence. That's the premise of the movie, even if it's never stated, right? The premise is the starting point. It's where you start. If you start with any of these experiences in the indicative, this is what's happening, you cannot get from that to a conclusion in an imperative. Logically, it cannot happen. To get to an imperative 
conclusion, you have to start with what? A premise in the imperative. The, um, the innovator is trying to get to a conclusion in the imperative mood out of premises in the indicative mood, and though he continues trying all eternity, he cannot succeed, for the thing is impossible. We must therefore either extend the word reason to include what our ancestors called practical reason and confess that judgments such as society ought to be preserved are not mere sentiments that is to be debunked, thrown away, trashed, they're not mere sentiments, but our rationality itself. So honoring your parents, parents loving God, you know, whatever they are, are the basis of all that we do. If we don't start with that, we're lost. Page 46, this he will probably feel that he has found in instinct. That is, that instinct is the basis of everything. And he goes on to show that can't be so. Um, 49, to listen to one stink over another makes no sense. Each instinct, he said, if you listen to it, will claim to be gratified at the expense of all the rest. By the very act of listening to one rather than to others, we have already prejudiced the case. If we did not bring to the examination of our instincts a knowledge of their comparative dignity, that is, their relative claims on us, we could never learn from them. We have to make, we have to perform acts of reflection on our instincts to make sense of them. That is, our mind has to be engaged. We have to think about things, make decisions, weigh things. He says in 51 in the middle, only people educated in a particular way have ever had the idea of posterity before their minds at all. It's difficult to assign to instinct our attitudes towards an object which exists only for re reflective men because intellectuals today would say, it's instinctive in us to save our own lives. So it's a natural conclusion to save our species. Only intellectuals do that. But they're the ones, they're, that's Gaius and Titus. They're the ones who pick out one. They don't look to the whole Tao. They pick out one to focus on it without seeing how it might be offset by others. They, it's called reductive in the modern world. It's a reductive habit of thinking. Um, 52, this is the crux. The truth finally becomes apparent that neither in any operation with factual propositions that this is so, nor in any appeal to instinct can the innovator find a basis for a system of values. None of the principles he requires are to be found there, but they are to be found somewhere else. All within the four seas are his brothers. That's from, that's from Confucius. Um, Confucius. Um, the um, cure gentile or gentleman. Um, Humani nibil a me elimum puto, says the Stoic. Do as you would be done by, says Jesus. Humanity is to preserve, says Locke. All the practical principles behind the innovator's case for posterity or society or the species are there from time immemorial in the Tao. But they are nowhere else. Unless you accept these without question, you, um, these are axioms. You can have no practical principle. You cannot get to a conclusion. Middle of 53, you must allow that reason can be practical, that an ought must not be dismissed because it cannot produce some is in its credential. If nothing is self-evident, nothing can be proved. 
hold on, I want to make this statement. I, um, I know we're getting into logic. And remember that I said months and months ago that to think at all, we have to start with something self-evident. If you don't have something self-evident, you can't move to a conclusion. The two fundamental self-evident facts of our existence, most people don't even know them. The first fact, the self, the first self-evident fact of thought, I gave you this before, the first self-evident, I'm going to give a quiz on this, in six months we're together. The first self-evident assumption is the premise, take it away and there's no thinking, we can't think. The first self-evident fact of thinking is the rule of non-contradiction. If you take that away, we can't think. Either something's here or not. This microphone is here or it's not. If I say it's here, I can begin to think. The rule of non-contradiction is the first assumption of thought. Without it, we can't think. Is that clear? Lewis is saying, if there's nothing self-evident, we can't think, you can't make conclusions. I'll read it again. If nothing is self-evident, nothing can be proved. If we don't begin with something, we can't prove it. Science makes inferences. Listen to this, science makes inferences. It, it forms hypotheses. It has to test them out by experience and prove them. And once it's proven, they can say, this is so. And on the basis of that, they can draw conclusions. If DNA is real and you bring it into a court case, you can, you can argue from the fact of that DNA to other conclusions using logic, right? Take it away and you have no basis. It's still hypothetical. You have to prove it to show that it actually exists. Okay? What's the first assumption? The very basic assumption of human actions. It's the basis on which we act. Take it away, we have no basis on which to do anything. What's the first assumption of human action? The first principle, remember all of this is about going to first principles, the first principle of thought is the law of non-contradiction. The first principle of human action is do good, unto, um, do good unto either, do good and avoid evil. Take that away, right? If you start with that and you're in a bus and somebody's going to attack you with a gun and you shoot him, you can defend yourself. You're trying to do good to stop evil. You know, or whatever it is, you can argue. But if you take that first principle away, if we don't get to first principles, we're trapped, we're handy, we can't do anything. Page 55. So he spoke in the truth and said, this is the crux. You can't you can't get from an instinct to a not. You can't get from a fact to an imperative. You have to begin. And the only way to do that is to turn to what he's calling these first principles. And by the way, if you, if you haven't seen, you know that the whole end of the book, the, the appendix is just long lists from the North world, the African world, the Egyptian world, the China. It's all these, um, what do you call them? Um, truths, practical truths of our life, you know, that have existed everywhere. There are, so it's just a long list. Those are the, those are, he's saying, that's the basis of rationality. Take that away and we're, we have no basis on which to act. On page 55, he concludes and he says, since I can see no answer to these questions, let's, you know, what do we turn to? 
I draw the following conclusions. He's arguing against these people who want to do away with the Tao or this sense of this. Remember Plato, for Plato was the good. The good was diffusive everywhere, everything in the world. Um, what, um, bonum, bonum es, bonum, bonum es diffusivum sui, goodness is diffusive everywhere. He said goodness is diffusive, it, it, it's everywhere. Boethius' argument, goodness is everywhere, God is here. Even where we commit evil, there's no evil inherent, none. The Protestant world say otherwise. We say that nature's good, God created it good. There's no evil, we make evil by turning away from him. And Boethius said, everything that God does is good. He takes evil and turns it to good. So there's no bad fortune. He's, he's at work everywhere. Do we see that? So he says, um, there's this goodness that's everywhere and he can see no way to get around it. He's made an argument to back that up. If these people turn to particular things, they're actually drawing from the Tao. Every single thing they appeal to is some partial aspect of the Tao. And he says, I can see another way except the following conclusion. This thing which I have called for convenience, this is on page 55, the Tao, and which others may call natural law, or traditional morality, or the first principles of practical reason, or the first platitudes, is not one among a series of possible systems. There are no Chinese, African, there is one Tao, one all-informing goodness. The Jewish had another name for it. It was the laws permeate God's order. The good, the good Jew would conform himself to that. Um, it's not one among a series of possible systems of value. It's the whole, the sole source of all value judgment. If it's rejected, all value is rejected. If any value is retained, it is retained. The effort to refute it and raise a new system of value in its place is self-contradictory. There never has been and never will be a radically new judgment of value in the history of the world. What purports to be new systems, or as they now call them, ideologies, all consist of fragments from the Tao itself, arbitrarily wretched from their context in the whole and then swollen to madness in their isolation. Go down a few lines. The rebellion of new ideologies against the Tao is a rebellion of the branches against the tree. If the rebels could succeed, that is, picture somebody cutting off the branch they're sitting on from the tree. They're actually taking away their own lives. The rebellion of new ideologies against the Tao is a rebellion of the branches against the tree. If the rebels could succeed, they would find that they had destroyed themselves. The human mind has no more power of inventing a new value than of imagining a new primary color or indeed of creating a new sun or a new sky for it to move. I watch these commercials today that show couples sort of recreating the world in the way they want to be romantic with each other. It's the sort of mindset our age, yeah? Have, create the world the way you want. There's no sun, there's no, take away the sun and the moon. <laughs> Where will we be? I mean, it's as ridiculous as that, yeah? He's saying there can be changes, Nietzsche, but he says it depends on whether the change is from the outside or inside. Change from within is organic. It's one with the Tao. So don't do this to others was an older fashion. Do this to others is an improvement, but it's a growth from within the Tao. So he ends saying, so, so he says on page 57, 
Do not do unto others what you would not like them to do unto you. To the Christian, do as you would be done to is a real advance. Growth, maturity, development can take place from within the Tao. To go against it is to cut ourselves off from the very source of life. So he says, so, but the modern mind says, you, you, you've got all these traditional values. Um, they're pointless. Let's do away with all of them and see what we could do. Get rid of the Tao altogether. Page 61. You say we shall have no values at all if we step outside the Tao. Very well. We shall probably find that we can get quite comfortably without them. Let us regard all ideas of what we ought to do simply as interesting psychological survival. Let us step right out of all that and start doing what we like. Let us decide for ourselves what man is to be and make him into that not on any ground of imagined value, but because we want him to be such. Having mastered our environment, let us now master ourselves and choose our own destiny. This is a very possible position, and those who hold it cannot be accused of self-contradiction, like the half-hearted skeptics who hope to find some real values when they've debunked the traditional ones. Once you start treating away from theirs, where do you go? So he says, these lukewarm people, <laughs> what to do with them? The people who are saying, let's get rid of it all, or at least have the integrity of being logical. Get rid of it. Let's be our own masters. This is the rejection of the concept of value altogether. I shall need another lecture to consider it. So the third chapter will be Lewis's attempt to answer those people to say, let's fashion our own world. Let's create our world in our image. We don't need this stuff. I mean, this is so modern. I'm trusting everybody's seen it. Let's create our world in our own image. Okay, what's Lewis's argument to that? What, what will we discover if we take that step? That's the last chapter. That's the chapter we'll do next week, okay? Okay. Heavy stuff in logic? No? 